Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be chatting with the Chancellor of Nevada's higher education system, Tom Riley. Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor of the Indy, is here to help me look good, as always. And as always, Elizabeth and I will close and talk about some of the issues of the day. Let's get started first with a quick recap of some headlines this week from the Nevada Independent. We're recording this on Wednesday this week, so I'll make it brief. The big news this week is gubernatorial hopeful Adam Laxalt releasing his education plan. Not a lot of surprises. He wants to continue the Sandoval reforms, take them further with more transparency, and, of course, fund school choice. He didn't have much in there about how he'll pay for all this, especially since he wants to repeal the commerce tax. Both of his Democratic foes, Chris Giunchiliani and Steve Sisolak, immediately unleashed on Twitter. It's going to be a long year. We cover John Kerry and Harry Reid speaking in Reno, criticizing the lack of bipartisanship and the overarching influence of money in politics. Yes, Harry Reid. I believe there was a laugh track. Clark County commissioners considered a moratorium on pot dispensaries this week, but only one of them, Susan Brager, seems interested. Seems some are worried about too many of those establishments clogging our fair city. Now imagine if the same arguments were made about other legal establishments, you know, like casinos. The Clark County Teachers Union won an arbitration case against the school district, which had argued it couldn't pay increased salaries and benefits. The arbitrator said the district can pay. The district responded to the ruling by essentially saying, we still can't pay. So it goes. There's a lot more to check out on the site. That's the NevadaIndependent.com, including our indie blog that has snippets of news you won't see anywhere else. Back in a moment on Indie Matters with Tom Riley. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. We're here with our guest, Tom Riley. Riley's been manager of the lo- largest local government in Nevada, Clark County. He's also been a professor at a couple of universities. He wrote a book about a failed California local government. He's been chancellor since last August. Tom Riley, welcome to Indie Matters. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth Thompson is also here. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. All right, so we're here on the campus of UNLV. I didn't notice you being hung in effigy anywhere out there. You got here okay? I did. All right, good. I'm glad I'm glad to hear it. So let's let's just really start with a basic question, and I bet you don't get asked this uh, a lot, but I bet a lot of people are thinking, like, well, what is a chancellor anyway? What is the chancellor's job? Isn't he just a guy who gets to wear the nicest cap and gown at the commencements? What do you really do? That's a good question. You know, when I, I was actually interviewing for the job and did uh, a lot of uh, campus visits, um, I had a couple students walk up to me in UNR and said, you know, we're student leaders and we're here to listen to you because we thought it was very important, but we have no idea what the chancellor does. Um, so in, in the system in Nevada, the chancellor is appointed by a 13-member board of regent, uh, regents, and they, uh, um, the chancellor supervises the eight presidents at the eight institutions. So we have one system of higher education, everywhere from community colleges to our research institutions. So you you are <laughs> essentially, uh, or Glenn Jessup, the president of UNLV, supervisor. And That's so, correct. Uh, uh, the big news, of course, is that Len Jessup, the president, has decided to leave. He wrote a fairly astonishing missive to the campus that I'll talk about in, in a moment. But let, let me ask you a, 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 a couple of simple questions, Chancellor Riley, and that is, are you glad he's leaving and did you tell him to leave? Well, uh, that's, that's a good question. Uh, no, uh, the first conversation we had about uh, Lynn leaving his job as president was on March 5th when he actually came in 
and told me he was done with the job. Um, he said he's found the uh, governance structure challenging uh, and that he was confident to find other work. Uh, he subsequently uh, announced that to the campus on the 14th. So, you know, prior to that, um, we've had a lot of conversations um, as a, a supervisor and, and, and someone under them would. Um, it's no secret that uh, I did do an evaluation. The evaluation included uh, a lot of strength. That evaluation is required. Each of the presidents are required to receive the evaluation. It's an annual evaluation between me and the president. Uh, I outlined strengths. So I, I, I outlined issues of outcomes that I wanted to see that aligned to our five goals particularly around student success. And it's fair to say I, I outlined some operational deficiencies that I uh, observed, but that wasn't the first time we had that conversation. It was placed in the evaluation, but we were having ongoing conversations even afterwards about some of these challenges. What kind of, when you say operational deficiencies, that's we hear that in business speak a lot. What Can you give one uh, example? Well, of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get very specific on it, but... Um, uh, you know, they dealt with anywhere from programs or just how the operations uh, are running. Are we and, talking and about money issues or administrative uh, all, issues? All, you know, mostly administrative, mostly how the operations, how the programs are actually uh, operating within the uh, university. Did you, so you say you didn't tell him to leave in answer to John's question. Did, did you hint around that um, maybe you or some of the regions wouldn't be disappointed if, if he were to move on? The evaluation outlined the, those issues. Uh, we discussed about how we move forward on that. We did not have a discussion prior to that of saying you need to leave. We so were you say you need to address this. Okay. So to so answer your question is, was I surprised yesterday? Yes. I mean, um, again, I knew he was uh, looking. Uh, he made that very clear, as I said. So, I mean, even after the fifth, we began talking about what the transition period is. If you come in and say, I'm done uh, and I'm leaving, then we're going to say, what is the time frame? And I yeah. said, Clearly, you know, I'd like to say at the end, you know, through commencement. But, you know, if you're leaving, you're not just going to hang around. We want to talk specifics about when you're actually departing. You are bound, obviously, by certain strictures here that you don't want to violate in talking about some of these things. You've actually, I heard you on KNPR this morning talking about the personnel file and how you think the media has not properly reported on that personnel file. Let, let me just ask well, you. Well, I don't think it's not properly mm -hmm. reported. Is that... You know, the, 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 pers the personnel evaluation hasn't been leaked. Yeah, no one's and the seen reason that. I know that because I've seen every iteration uh, of what it says, and it doesn't contain what my evaluation uh, had. Have, so you that was a have you brought it here today to this podcast? Or so you have not. Okay. All right. So, so let, 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 let's just try to distill this because I think people should separate fact from, from whatever, whatever is, is, might be out there that might not be true. Is it true, Chancellor Riley, that basically Len Jessup was doing a pretty good job, maybe even a very good job of raising money for the institution, but you came in as chancellor and you saw, you call them operational deficiencies. You came in and essentially looked at UNLV and said, what is going on here? Things are not running the way they're supposed to be running. And it's your job, Len Jessup, whether it's problems at the dental school that have been publicized, some problems at the medical school, and maybe other things that haven't been publicized. Is that an accurate view of what your conversations with him were? It is. And and again, you know, my focus when I came in here was to actually look at how we move the system forward. And first and foremost, it's about student success. If we are not graduating individuals, we're not doing our job. I've said this repeatedly. A little bit of college doesn't do anyone any good. In fact, in some cases, it's worse because you saddle them with debt. If they come to us, we have to figure out ways to move forward. Now, I don't expect that to happen overnight. 
But I do expect plans. And why I've restructured the Regents meeting is for this very issue. We will focus these deep dive on all these goals and have a detailed conversation that looks at national statistics as well as peer and aspirational uh, for like universities or like community colleges about how we move that needle. That is what we should be discussing at the Regents meeting. And that is how I'm restructuring stuff. So it makes sense that we're going to hold the institutions accountable for that. Again, I don't expect that to happen overnight. To your point is that um, uh, I agree. I think President Jessup has a lot of strengths, and I think that he, made, he did a good job on the issue of fundraising. But absent that was, was talking about these core uh, success variables. Um, in the last year, and it's not just UNLV, it's all our institutions, but in the last year, our freshmen, we've had a 3% decline in freshmen that have moved forward from one year to another. That's going in the wrong direction. Um, and again, I am not asking that over, uh, overnight we, we, we make radical changes in our outcomes, but we should be having plans that are set forth at the uh, institutional level and discussed with regents. I want to create an opportunity where presidents are saying, this is why we can't close the achievement gap. This is why our outcomes for Latino and our African-American children or youth students are not, are not near acceptable. You know, on that one point, we're a majority-minority system. Where our minority population goes, we go. We can make the most strides by looking at that population. I want to see concrete programs, and I can actually give one, if I have time, about what I think um, between UNLV and CSN that can address that issue. Wait, hold that thought. <laughs> Chancellor, given that public administration is a radically different skill set from fundraising, is it outlandish to suggest that maybe – we should separate the two, that maybe the president's primary role shouldn't be fundraising? Should, you know, sh should the university talk about a separate person or uh, a separate group to, to undertake that? Because the medical school does, you know, it's relying on donations. So is the university to, to some degree. I'm sure that's important to you. Are, is now the time to have that conversation? I think it is. But a point on the medical school is that our medical school is fully operational. The legislature is funded. It is a top priority going to this legislature. The governor and the legislature is committed to funding that. We're talking about capital for a building, which is important, but the operational uh, aspects of the program are, are funded. But to your point is that not everybody can be all things to, to, to everyone. I mean, sometimes you have more operational issues or you're more fundraisers. But, you know, a good leader also complements that, that realizes that these are the either deficiencies or challenges or things they're just not good at. But ultimately, the president is responsible for moving the organization forward. And again, we have decided with the board to adopt these goals. These are what we're judging our success for. And, and, and I, I would venture to say these metrics that we have developed are pretty standard. They're very simple. There's nothing flowery or, 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 or uh, that any of this can be misunderstood. We are about graduating individuals. Um, uh, we're about increasing access and other pathways because what we know is that individuals with a high school diploma or less will not progress. There is no pathway to social mobility, and we've relegated that to 24% of our population, where the national average is at 40. We need to do a better job of talking pathways, not a four-year degree, but some other certificate two-year degree, and once they get in, they need to graduate. 
I actually uh, would like to spend more time talking about these kinds of substantive issues because I think you really are concerned uh, about them. And the whole nexus between lower education, the community college system, and, and, and the university system, I know you're a guy, you're a very thoughtful guy. You're a, poli you're a policy wonk. Uh, you don't like talking about personnel issues. I, I, I know that. You still have these terrible statistics that I've seen, Chancellor, about how many kids that come to, into UNLV uh, from the schools here have to do so much remedial uh, work. And, and, and that, that, of course, doesn't help the graduation rate. But you want more than just to increase the graduation rate, which, is, of course, may be your top priority. You said on KNPR this morning that you believe that UNLV is a great university. You really think it's a great university yet? Yeah. Well, first of all, it has, it has all the potential of moving in that direction. It has, it, I mean, it's a dynamic place. We have a law school. We have a medical school that's critically needed. Through law school is doing fantastically law well. It's in the top issues. 60 now. But, but it also is that, you know, the the... The vast potential of individuals in this country um, who've been neglected by the higher education system is not going to be realized by select universities or elite universities just cracking open their door just a little bit. It's going to be realized by institutions we have in Nevada that are committed to broad access uh, as well as the issue of excellence. We need to focus on the excellence. But if individuals come to community college, it's open access. If you come to UNLV and UNR and you meet minimum standards, you get in. I'm proud of that. And that's something I think moves our nation forward and addresses the workforce issues. But l let me talk specifically about the issue with UNR and U uh, uh, CSN about a partnership. Is that it is no secret that a, that a large percentage of our students who come here need remedial education at the community college level and at UNLV. The, the legislature has recognized that as to the regions, and there's a funding formula that funds community colleges for remedial education. UNLV and UNR don't get funding, no, no funding for that. What I have been pushing and proposing is that have CSN offer class, if you get in at a 3.0, uh, to UNLV, but you have challenges which many students do in science, English, or math. You take those remedial cl classes, have CSN, CSN on campus, offering those classes, particularly on Fridays and Saturday where nobody's here. No one's here on Friday and Saturday. Have them offer the classes where those students can be mainstreamed. Because once you start kicking them back to community colleges, they don't go forward. Let them mainstream. The, the, we know we have challenges in K through 12. You know, I, you know, I can't change that overnight. Everyone's struggling to deal with that issue. We have to deal with what we come here. But we can't simply just say and, and accept that, you know, when national graduation rates at, at four-year institutions are 58%, that we're okay with 39 or 40 you know, that, that's – or at least let's move in the right direction. So you're saying – I want to make sure I understand you because uh, maybe this has been suggested before, but it's the first that I've heard of it unless I forgot. You're talking about having a CSN presence on the UNLV campus so that yeah. we're not kicking those kids like back, back to yeah. the community college campus. They it, it still feel all, like they're part of the yeah, university and it shouldn't be all here or is nothing. what you're saying. You know, we're one system. We don't have to deal with another bureaucracy or another community college run by different regions. We're one system. We can make that happen. You know, we need to respond as a system to the workforce needs and to the higher education needs in this community. There's no reason why we can't do that. And so what I've been pushing is that those are the type of things I want to see, you know, from our institutions. And, and I'm not just singling out uh, uh, um, uh, uh, UNLV. CSNs, their graduation rate, when you compare them to other ethnically based large uh, uh, urban areas, it, it, you know, the national average is, what, 21 to 25 percent? We're at seven. We're at seven. Um, you know, a president that can't come in here and offer 
uh, strategies to move that forward. Now, what some of the presidents said is they've not had the opportunity to have that dialogue. I'm going to have that dialogue with the issue. Why have they not had the opportunity? Well, I mean, part of it is that, you know, I, I've suggested the, the, the agendas. We talk a lot on the agendas, and I'm not sure we talk about these substantive issues. Um, June, I'm, I'm laying out a dashboard. Our dashboard, which is very simple, align to those five goals. You can pick every one of those goals, look at national data, and look at all the peer and aspirational institutions the institutions have chosen. And we can track where we're at. So I want the conversation is that <clears throat> why is it that we or Latino students and African-American students um, aren't um, graduating at near the rate of, uh, of Caucasian students? Well, let me tell you something. Western Nevada College 10 years ago looked at the rate of Latino kids and white kids. And they said, this is unacceptable. In 10 years, they developed a hybrid jumpstart program that intensive outreach to Latino families, involved Latino families in the education of their students. Today, they have an equal graduation rate between Latino children, Latino students, and white students. Now, granted, that's a smaller population, but that is the type of st this isn't rocket science. You know, we can look at evidence-based programs to, to to actually look at how we move that needle. But we aren't having those conversations. And I'm not just saying I want to set the presidents up, you know, to be criticized and, and beat up by the regents. Well, but that, but that is essentially. Let me just stop you for a second because you want to get beyond this convulsion. And and those of us who've been around here uh, for a while have seen this to some extent before. I know it's not what you wanted when you got this job just a few months ago. But this this letter that Jessup wrote uh, is is part of a larger issue. Our Michelle Rendell's wrote, I, I thought, a great piece over the weekend showing this constant tug of war that goes on between, you know, a guy who's supposed to be running the system, you and, and the regents and these donors who, who try to wield influence maybe disproportionately. I mean, this letter that Jessup wrote talking uh, about how you created an intolerable and unacceptable working environment, how you, you subjected him and you and the regents subjected him to personal attacks and that, that you didn't uh, uh, um, go by the, the terms of his contract and how you handled at all. That's a terrible, I don't know why a guy who's leaving and going to another job would do that on the way out. Frankly, I think that, I wonder how his new employer thinks about that, but forget about that for a second. What he's saying is, don't trust these people. Don't trust Tom Riley. Don't trust the regents. They're not doing a good job running the system. They're making my job as the president of UNLV more difficult. How do you get beyond that? Well, you know, I think we also have eight other, we have eight institutions. You know, and we've had long stability and longevity of presidents in all those institutions. The Desert Research Institute, Stephen Wells was here for, what, 16, 17 years and just left. Uh, Mike Richardson with uh, CSN just left after 11 years. And they've worked under the same governance structure. Um, what is this uh, complaint about governance, uh, Chancellor? I, I keep hearing this. What is it that Len Jessup is complaining well, I, I, about? I, think, I mean, I think part of it is that the concern and in, in what in, in President Jessup's uh, defense and stuff, he has talked about the issue of regents in the past, of calling in there, calling at the university, um, asking for stuff or, or drilling it down. It must happen in every system in the country, It is. Right? And what I've asked regents to do is this, is that, is that those issues that they have concerns about in institutions is go through me. You can't have, you know, 13 or 14 people talking to about what direction you need to go. As a matter of practice, I do not call the organization, call in, I don't talk to deans unless there's a specific project we're working on. And if I did, there'd be a real concern. If I had ongoing conversations with deans and others, there would be a problem. I go through the president uh, in order to deal with that. But I, I will state again on the issue of UNLV with these the, these operational issues. And, you know, some of them have been in the paper. You've touched upon with the dental school and, and stuff. But... Um, Th they were serious enough that they had to be addressed. 
and you're right. Because there were issues up there, um, I was pretty dogged about getting and running them to resolution. There's no question about it. Um, I also can say is that about 70, 80 percent of my time has been spent on UNLV at the disservice of the rest of the institution. Well, were you surprised at what you found? Be honest, when you became I, I was. The fact that, you know, and I've told Regents this, is that, you know, this is a different job than you told me about. Um, you know, one is that, uh, you know, my skill set I see as being is, is visionary, setting strategic goals, working with elected officials and moving us forward in that direction. And, and I've been, you know, mirrored in, in operational issues at one institution. Um, and, you know, we have two new presidents that started. We have two others that I'm recruiting for that I should be spending a lot more time for. Part of this issue is with the COO that in this discussion is to get that out of my office, have it owned at the university level with, with where, where there's uh, a confidence that it's being addressed is why I say sometimes bringing someone in from the outside is necessary. It's not that you don't have the, the talent sometimes. It, you need that in order to move forward. But own these issues. Run them to resolution. Get them out of my office so I can focus on these other larger issues. Um, but, you know, I think you also have to look at the whole uh, system as a whole. There's, there's seven other institutions that um, presidents seem to be working fine uh, and, 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 and doing their job and running their institutions. I guess what I'm wondering about, and maybe we can look beyond this in a second, which I'm sure you'd be thrilled uh, to do, is that you do still have these donors uh, who some of them some of them are great, I'm sure, and, and they're hands off, and they say, I want UNLV to be successful. Here's a bunch of money. There was this issue about uh, Jessup uh, having his name in one of these agreements and Chris Engelstadt, the Engelstadt Foundation, uh, which does a lot of fine work everybody knows. But, uh, but, but, her, but her attitude essentially was, if you, if you get rid of him, I'm, then, I'm, then I'm pulling my, my money. Have you talked to her? Have you talked to some of these other donors about the issues? Uh, I, I did talk to Chris. I have a great uh, deal of respect for Chris Engelstadt and, and the work they do. Uh, you know, I was in uh, philanthropic endeavors for a long period of time with Caesars Foundation. You know, I get what donors want and what they want to put in agreements, and it's ultimately up to the donor to decide whether they can agree, the donee, or whether they can agree to that. And, and, and again, on that one issue, um, it, it's not that a donor can't ask what they want. They can ask anything they want. Um, uh, the concern that surfaced on this, of course, was that um, as a public official, you can't sign a document or agreement where you benefit financially. And at the very least, you have your, you have your legal uh, general counsel review it. Uh, and, and as I talked to President Jessup, if you had done that, your counsel would have said, you can't sign this. You know, you can't sign something that specifically has a financial interest. In case people don't know, just let me just uh, stop you for a Some people listening might not know, but the agreement, I think it said uh, that, that he would remain as president at least through 2022, if I remember uh, what, or, or, what it said. Yeah, it was it was his current contract plus a new contract. Okay, that, 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 that's what I thought. And, and so and so this this was not vetted by anyone uh, legally, and it also included keeping uh, the medical school right. dean uh, on as well, Barbara Atkinson. And, and, and those two should not have signed it. They should have said, you know, if the donor was insisting that this— this was a condition of the pledge of $14 million. So she went to the chancellor and said, hey, look, you know, they have great confidence in me, but I can't sign this um, uh, because it's self-dealing. It's, 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 it's an issue. Is Chris Engelstad going to give the, mo give the money, do you think? She said no. Is she going to give the uh, you money? Know, you know, as I said, I, 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 I would hate to think that we've lost uh, the Engelstad. You know, part of it, I think, we have to listen again about the concerns that they've had and, and, and continue to have about confidence. And, um, but, you know, part of that issue with, with, with the donation is that, 
you know, the regents don't ha didn't have a lot of control over that. It went to the foundation at UNLV. They never saw the agreement. Uh, you know, and, and if it wasn't for Ms. Inglesat asking us to, you know, did we look at it, uh, we probably would have never, ever looked at the agreement. I mean, it's not a practice that we go to individual institutions, foundations, and pull the money out right. or, or look at the money because it, it's donated to the foundation. Um, and there was clear direction where that, that went. But, but having said that is that you always have to have a balance the issue with donors. I have had a conversation with the incoming uh, foundation chair, Greg McKinley, and um, uh, we did talk about, you know, what we need to do to kind of repair and move forward. We, be, we began a conversation with that. But I also asked, you know, them to, 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 to have part of their dialogue, although they're raising capital dollars, too, is that at the end of the day, it is about these student success. And I, I know I keep harping on that, but, you know— I would hope you would. <laughs> if we don't graduate students, we're not doing our job. Um, and uh, we need to talk about that more. And it's why I'm going to talk about it at every board meeting. Um, I'm going to talk about our graduation rates for Latino and African-American kids. Uh, and I'm going to force a dialogue between presidents and regents about what are the obstacles in achieving that. And why is it, you know, that if you look at our aspirational institutions at UNLV, San Diego State University, and um, Arizona State University, two universities I've worked at, uh, as well as um, uh, the University of Houston, um, why is it they're able with the same demographics to move the needle on these issues? And what is it they're doing that they can share that we can, and if it's resource issue, let's talk about the resource issue. Let's talk about what resources are needed and have that, and let presidents talk to regions about what they need to be successful uh, in, in uh, serving uh, higher education needs. Is it is it part of the picture? So I, I want to. I went uh, part time to UNLV uh, as a continuing. I, I went to community college in another state, um, and it took me nine years on a part time basis because I needed to work full time. Sure taking two or three classes a semester to get there. And I'm so grateful that UNLV was an institution at that time uh, that allowed me as an adult kind of non-traditional student to have that flexibility. And, and it occurred to me as I was going to school here, because many of the students in my classes who were much younger than me uh, coming out of high school were in similar situations. They, they were working, uh, holding down jobs to pay their bills. They didn't have a lot of financial support. They were also in school part-time. I, I hear a lot of talk in policy circles about how you know, the way to make sure that we get more kids to graduate uh, is to make sure that we're getting them in and out in a four- to five-year time period. That's kind of the more traditional track. But I'm wondering, do you agree with that? Is yeah, that really yeah, that's true? That's a great question because that, that fits into one of our issues of priority. Well, first, when we look at graduation rates for a four-year university, we use a six-year time frame. So just to put in perspective, it's not the four years, it's the average is six years. So you look at iPads and how we compare nationally, we look at a six-year graduation rate. But you're absolutely right. And we need to talk differently about how we offer higher education through distance learning, through, through learn as you go, different modalities about how we're meeting workforce needs. One of the, one of the priorities we're going to push with the legislature uh, is around summer school. Uh, right now, we are only funded through the legislature for nursing. It's the only profession because there's a high demand for that. We have tremendous high demand needs in HVAC, engineering. Um, students aren't traditional. They don't just go in the fall and the spring anymore. They have to go in the summer. The, the federal Pell Grant has realized this and gives us federal Pell money in the summer. Um, I'm even you know, uh, having discussions with legislators about uh, the, the Silver State uh, Opportunity Grant 
that basically was based upon a 15 to 15 finish. I, I, I've challenged that. I said, let's do 30. You know, the, the realization is that not all students can do 15 and 15. You know, I, I, I am uh, supporting a, a young uh, a DACA student in Arizona going on to college, and I, I told him, you're going to go. You're going down to a 12. Uh, you're a smart kid, but you have to work. You have to support your sister and your mother, and you're going to go 12, 12, and 6. And that's how we're going to get you in two years to ASU. But, but that's the reality. So I think that we need to talk differently about how we offer those. And I think summer school, because, you know, the institutions are reluctant to offer summer school because they don't get reimbursed for it. So, you know, we can actually get people through faster and offer uh, more classes and, 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 and get more in the reality is that that's how people are getting educated these days. Right. You heard and, it here, and, uh, lawmakers. They're, Riley's coming for yeah. some summer school money. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, distance learning. Uh, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be partnership, partnering, and I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, with MGM on, on a proposal about access issues. But part of the issue is that we need to ramp up our, our distance learning uh, um, and online uh, offerings. Well, we have about five minutes left, and I, I want to get to a couple other uh, issues. And one of them was already was alluded to with the legislature. The legislature, uh, to some extent, uh, has a disdainful view of, of the way that the system is managed. And you know that there's been proposals there. Uh, I don't know how you can. I mean, I, I I don't know how you did your job when you had to deal with seven county commissioners. Now you've got thirteen uh, regents. I know you probably. I think at one time you were, you actually supported appointing regents, but I'm not going to get you into that jackpot with your bosses. I'm not going to be that cruel today, so you can thank me later. <laughs> but 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 I, but I guess what I'm wondering is. What the donors generally think is that, listen, I gave some money, so I should be able to call anybody I want, right? I can call presidents. But they also think regents, we should be appointing them. Most of them or a large percentage of them, too many of them, whatever they think, chancellor, are not qualified for the job. They're just – they're budinskis. Stay out of the way. Let the chancellor, whoever it is, do do his or, or, or her job. I guess what I'm asking, and again, I, I understand the tension because you work for these folks, and I, I have a lot of respect, by the way, for some of the regions. I think they're very good, dedicated people. Uh, can this work in this kind of unwieldy system with 13 regions, even if you have a very dedicated, uh, qualified chancellor who has a vision that you've, that you've outlined partly today? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, I've been having a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings with legislators. In fact, b before we meet as a legislature, I think I'll have met with every single legislator. I'm so sorry. So I, I'm getting you know, <laughs> their input on, on what they feel they need. In fact, uh, we're having a workshop in April. And because of the concerns about the issue of transparency, I've invited legislators to actually come to our workshop. We're doing a joint presentation on the funding formula, which will put anybody to sleep. But it, it is how we fund our system. Well, but that's, a, that's a great – the funding formula is a perfect example of that. People don't pay attention to it. And they crow like at the end of every session. We have funded it to 80 percent of the funding formula as if that's some great achievement, well, right? I, I, I want you know, – we have new presidents. I'm, I'm new as a regent. We have uh, new regents. Um, I want to make sure we're on sync with the legislature on what the funding. Can you sync all is. that up? Because well, that is the greatest challenge of your career: thirteen <laughs> regions, sixty-three <laughs> legislators. Well, but so, all the what, 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 part of it is I'm inviting them. So I'm, I'm saying, you know, here is a process. You know, we're, you know, there's always been concerns, for example, of how capital projects are done. Is it more skewed north or south? You know, I'm uh, at a budget workshop, and the regions are probably going to kill me. I don't think <laughs> all of them know this, but I'm basically there. There are three capital projects we need to prioritize because we got planning money for last time from the governor, and we have seven projects under planning consideration. I'm having each of the regions get dots. 
and they have three dots for the capital projects and seven dots for the, and they can put all their dots on one, but it's all going to be out there in the open. I mean, That's no, a lot of no dots. Vetting, Love there it. Be no vetting through the chancellor's office on prioritizing Great. or how things are done backwards. Right. And that's transparent, be, too. It'll be all out in the public right. about how we make those decisions. Can we come? Um, it'll be interesting how we pull this <laughs> off. Or, and again, it won't be, you know, the end of the day, the, this many dots got, but at least allows us a conversation to sure. move forward. But to answer your question is, um, yes, I, I think it can work, and it has worked in many uh, circumstances. We made great strides here. Other systems have worked, too. But, you know, we should be open to perhaps other dialogue about how governance can work. I mean, maybe we don't need 13. Maybe it's not all elected or appointed. You know, at one point, uh, I believe uh, Senator Raggio uh, uh, pushed a bill that had, you know, three maybe elected and then six appointed. You're dating both of us that we're both <laughs> nodding our heads. Yeah. We remember I mean, this. So, you know, it could be a hybrid of that where you right. maintain an elected yeah. component, but you also have the issue of the point at where someone can look at, yeah. well, this is the skill set you need as a system to move It's forward. the same conversation we have about Clark County trustees. Exactly. Yeah. That a lot of people agree that, it, yes, it's fine to have some of them elected and they should be. It's also a great idea to have some of them appointed Go- and Governor make sure Sandoval they're fully qualified. Propose that. Absolutely. Supports it as well. But but, but I, I think while we're moving forward, and, and I don't want to just count my own horn on this, it is focused on the outcomes. You know, that that's why I've spent this exhausted amount of time in the first eight months of really getting them to adopt and agree upon what our outcomes are. And, and these, I believe, are the way our metrics are moving forward. And if we can change the dialogue. I mean, even on our budget prioritization, Regents were, were, were looking, how does that fit into your priorities? I mean, it was a good discussion. It is a discussion that we need to have moving forward. It's not going to solve all those issues, though. So who have you dialed or who has dialed you uh, since we learned of Mr. Jessup's uh, impending departure about this open position at UNLV? Uh, well, I mean, not necessarily interest in the position. I've had a lot of uh, colorful comments um, uh, on both sides. Inclu- including him in the Las Vegas Sun editorials. But no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but we will move forward. We will be able to recruit uh, someone um, who will. Final question, because we've only danced around it. I want to ask this before we run out of time. Talked about the medical school. We've talked a little bit about that. There's some. There have been some problems there that you were concerned with. Uh, uh, Barbara Atkinson was part of that deal to to, to perpetuate her tenure, uh, link it to a, a donor's contract. I, again, uh, I listened to your interview today on KNPR, and you said Dean Atkinson has done a wonderful job getting that program started. I have heard from some people, Chancellor, that. There's a difference between a founding dean and then a dean to run a school afterwards. Do you have faith that Barbara Ann, that Barbara Atkinson can continue as the dean as that program moves along? Well, it's my understanding, too, is, again, I, I don't interact with deans, too, is that uh, her, her contract's up this summer. Um, you know, so you know, my understanding is that there's agreement to actually look, you know, how— it happens That's in the every end. system, is to move forward and, and begin recruiting for an operational dean moving forward. And that is no disrespect at all to the, the founding dean. I mean, trying to get something started. But it is a different skill set, right? But she I mean, wants to stay, though, to right? Come. I, I haven't had that conversation with her, too. Um, but you know, my understanding from President Jessup and his leadership team is that, that that's the conversations that they've been having. Okay. Chancellor, it's, it's been a pleasure having you uh, on Indy Matters. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Elizabeth and I will be back in a moment. We're back on Indie Matters. Elizabeth Thompson, my managing editor, is still here. And we're going to chat about a couple things that are going on this week. I mentioned it earlier, Elizabeth, the first major education plan from Adam Laxalt. 
uh, who has had his differences with the current governor, including about over the commerce tax. He's proposed uh, his uh, education plan. In fact, he is doing it essentially right now as we are recording this podcast on Wednesday. We've had a look at it. It, 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 it essentially says what Governor Sandoval did on all those reform reforms that he put in 2015. He wants to continue. He will not cut back on education funding. Of course, education funding increases every uh, two years, so that's not really much of a promise. But he hasn't explained how he's going to continue the funding, if he's going to repeal the commerce tax, which brings $400 million or so into the general fund, maybe a little bit less or a little or a little bit more. He wants to double the out-of-pocket reimbursements for teachers, which actually I think is a great thing in the sense that the teachers are always complaining they have to pay for stuff. Of course, they shouldn't have to if you're funding education, but that's going to cost a lot of money, too. Uh, And of course, he wants to fund uh, education savings accounts, which Governor Sandoval did to the tune of $60 million, but it didn't get through the legislature. What's your take? A couple things. So first of all, one of the key members of Laxalt's campaign team, Robert Eitoven, was on Nevada Newsmakers this week, and he admitted that the repeal of the commerce tax is a long shot at best. So As much as Laxalt, I think, needs and wants to continue to talk about repealing the commerce tax because it's good for his conservative credibility, there are a lot of conservatives in the state who did not like that commerce tax any more than they didn't like the uh, gross uh, receipts tax that tried to get pushed through. And they don't care about the difference in the percentage and some of the arguments that have, have been made. So I think Laxalt knows that commerce tax probably is not going to get repealed, which means he's not going to have a $400 million hole in that budget, which is going to make it a lot easier for him to do these uh, these other eight things that he's promising uh, in this plan. So that's number one. One of my takeaways from the bullet points was that he mentioned specifically just about every reform measure that Sandoval put forth except for ELL funding. I don't know if that was purposeful or just an oversight or whether they just assumed, yeah, yeah, of course, we're going to keep funding that. But that was one of the things. I mean, they mentioned read by three. They mentioned um, continuing the opportunity scholarship funds and funding them at a higher level. Same thing with ESAs, ELL funding not mentioned. So that's one of the questions I hope our Indie reporter will be asking uh, at if this we get event if we if we get any opportunity to do that. Well, you made a good point there because it wasn't in there. The so-called Zoom schools, which are very important to uh, Governor Sandoval, and by the way, ELL funding and an increase in that is very important to someone else too, and that is Adam Laxalt's running mate, Michael Roberson, who took a lot of pride in being one of the first Republicans in history to support that 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 kind of funding. He, of course, also was uh, a main proponent of the commerce tax. I find it interesting, uh, and you mentioned that interview that Robert Eithoven, his main campaign uh, consultant, had in Nevada newsmakers uh, up, up north saying that it's unlikely to be repealed. Adam Laxalt, as governor, could just present a bill that would gut the commerce tax. He could do that. We'll, we'll, we'll see if he were to win, if, if he would do that. But he clearly, at least up until this point, has either not wanted to show uh, his cards and how he plans to fund some of these things, or he has no idea how he's going to fund it. And I don't want to be unfair to him, Elizabeth, in the sense that you and I have watched a lot of different campaigns. A lot of people propose stuff during campaigns and then just refuse to talk about how they're going to pay for it. He's not alone in that. But it's our job to try to find that out. Of course it is. And we'll, we'll keep on asking. Uh, I do want to mention we already have a story up on the Nevada Independent website that was uh, a preview of the plan. We'll add to that story as we get reactions and try to get more information and answer to some of these questions we're raising. And I just feel like we should say out loud, we, as political editors, sometimes we get in the habit of throwing around acronyms. So ELL, English Language Learning, um, that's making sure that 
students where English is not their first and primary language, usually they're not speaking it uh, in the home. ELL training has to do with direct tutoring to those students to teach them English. There's something like 27 different languages or more spoken in the Clark County uh, school district. Anyhow, this debate over education, you've already seen Chris June Kiliani and, and Steve Sisolak, the two county commissioners running for governor, attack this plan uh, mostly over school choice. And I, I, I mentioned this on Twitter. Uh, this, is, again, is Wednesday. People probably won't be hearing this until Friday or Saturday. But it's just – and this is something that's bothered me a lot over the years. I'm not necessarily a proponent of school choice, but I understand, Elizabeth, the frustration of parents in Nevada who have seen the, the, the absolutely uh, – it's not benign neglect. It's the cancerous neglect of legislature after legislature towards schools, not, not just in funding, but that they're but in lack of innovative solutions. And they and they see problems in their kids' public school and they throw up their hand to say, all right, give me give me five grand. I'll try to find something else. I, I don't like the, the fact that that's necessarily a surrender that the public school system can't do the job. But God, I understand the frustration that some parents must yeah, have. Yeah, well, you know what? The public education system isn't doing the job and has not been doing the job. And it is one reason uh, that ESAs uh, are well-liked, sometimes across party lines. Not all Democrats hate ESAs. And I'll tell you what, the parents who are getting five grand and an opportunity to pull their child out of a failing public school and get that child into a successful private school, of course, they're happy. And I, tens of thousands of parents across this state, I bet, would love to have that opportunity if it was fully funded. So I think that's a winner for the Laxalt campaign. And another thing I thought was really interesting, first time I've seen a major candidate suggest this as part of an education plan, is calling for an online checkbook. Now, we don't have a lot of details on what that means, but I'm, I sure want to find out. Um, an online checkbook that would show money coming in, money going out in the K-12 through system in this state. I'm presuming that means some line items of seeing exactly what money are we spending where because some of the public frustration and some of the reason that we can't get beyond this basic argument of does education need more money or not is that no one really understands the details and the public doesn't have enough information to even get involved in that dialogue. I support this. I hope Laxalt is serious. I hope I would hope other candidates would get behind this idea. If it's not gimmicky, uh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, candidates for, for, for a long time talk about putting certain checkbooks online and it sounds great. What I think, though, is when the candidates also say, I want more money to go into the classroom and, and they come up with these other shibboleths that are, that are meaningless. If this means something, if I have a student at X school and I can call up on a website and look how the funds are going in and out of that school and what they're of course, that's great. You and I both believe in transparency and accountability. It's what what's what we're all about at 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 the Indy. So, if it's meaningful, and if he has a really good idea on how to do it, which we'll probably know more by the time you hear this podcast, I I, I think that uh, I think he deserves credit for that. We'll see if it's more than that. Finally, let's just talk real quickly. I, I, I mentioned today. I mentioned in my newsletter this this week. This is a little bit of navel gazing by the by the media, but I think there's a greater point to be made here. First, the Red Rock Democratic Club, a small club, uh, had had a forum with candidates from Congressional District Four and barred the media from coming coming in with some ridiculous explanation 
questions of, 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 of that the candidates can't be honest or, or some nonsense about that. And then you had a Republican club, Republican men's club, which has always been very accommodating to the media in all the years I've been going, saying they can't, they couldn't let the media in to see uh, Dean Heller, who was notoriously media shy or media averse or media scared, whatever uh, the, the right <laughs> term is. And, and they said, oh, because we couldn't have the press get in the way of the food servers. Uh, now, whether Heller's campaign made that request, which they I, I, I don't know. But this is just absolutely ludicrous. Of course, these private clubs can do whatever they want. But this is becoming more and more of a problem in the sense of uh, these these candidates and, and the candidates didn't raise a ruckus at the, the, the Democratic Forum. They claimed, oh, we're shocked, shocked to hear this. We had no idea this was going on. Heller, of course, would never invite the media in. I guess where I'm going with this is, is that to me this is a greater problem. It doesn't. It's not just about us being petulant journalists who want to get in. This is a, this is a window into what these candidates are talking about. And every time that we can present that to the public, we should be allowed to or try to. I agree with you that we should try to get into every possible event where a, a candidate or a public uh, official uh, is speaking. But I also think that these private groups have every right. Um, to close their doors to the media. If they want to get an elected official in a room with their members and talk about whatever it is they want to talk about, they have a perfect right to do that. What I think is that they shouldn't make silly excuses about why they're choosing to do it, like, oh, we didn't want them to get in the way of the food service. Just say it's a closed event for our private membership because we want to have a candid conversation. Or don't even give a reason. You're a private organization. You don't you don't owe a, a reason. And I so I don't think you and I see this quite the same way, John, even though I am a journalist and I'd love to be in every room. And I love it when we can't be in a room and someone rec secretly records it and sends us the recording and then we get to find out what really happened in, uh, in the room. The other question, though, is this. If you are an elected official or, or a candidate, what is it that you want to be able to say to a private room that you wouldn't say in public and is that really the kind of public official you want to be? Because I think these situations raise those questions in the minds of voters is what is this person hiding? What's being said that the general public uh, can't hear? That's a problem that the candidates have to, I think, consider for themselves. OK, first off, you're fired. For, <laughs> for daring to disagree, for daring to disagree. with the editor. <laughs> secondly, okay, I fact, actually, it's been nice knowing you. Actually, secondly, I actually generally uh, agree with what you said in, in this sense. Uh, don't make the inane excuses. You can do what you can do whatever you want. And yes, you can probably have a more candid conversation with an elected official or a candidate without us pesky media types there writing down or recording every word. And let's face it, there is. I understand why some candidates might think that the media might distort what they say or do a gotcha or, 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 or I, I, I get that. But what I never have been able to understand is what they're afraid of. Dean Heller is afraid of the media. Why is he afraid of the media? Is it because he has no confidence in whatever his core convictions are? He, he thinks he might flub it? These candidates who are going to a forum, this, this I absolutely cannot countenance. This is the Democratic one. They're at a forum. Uh, we want to, you want to be able to show to the world your differences and, and why, you, why you're obviously the best candidate compared to the other ones on stage. You should insist that the media is, is let in to an event like that or you're not going to come to the Red Rock maybe, Democratic Club. Look, maybe Senator Heller's not afraid. Maybe he just doesn't like us. I mean, or he doesn't like the media. You're likable enough, Elizabeth. Well, I am. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, you know, I, I, think, I think that's quite 
plausible. And look, I, you know, I've watched Heller over this past couple years. When he does show up at a public forum or a town hall or something, invariably he gets heckled to death. He can't get more than a few sentences out of his mouth before some protesters disrupting the event. That's got to have left some kind of a bad taste in his mouth. Now, should the media get blamed for that? Probably not. It's not the media that's disrupting uh, the event. But maybe in in Heller's mind, it, it sort of all gets lumped together. And he just thinks, you know, yeah, I really rather would have a private conversation with this group of Republicans about what I think and believe. And, let you know, forget the the media. I, I can understand that that line of thinking, honestly. I, I actually, I, I get that as well. I just, I just don't think that's that's the explanation at all. I just think that he is. Uh, I, I don't want to focus this on Dean Heller, but, but I'd love I, to know. Dean Heller, call us and tell us why. <laughs> yes, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome to be a guest on the next please uh, indie matters. All right, we should wrap it up. Thanks, Elizabeth, for an especially spirited conversation. And uh, don't worry, everybody. I haven't. I, I have not He's just really kidding. fired her because the place would he fall fires apart me a couple without times her. a week. Yes, uh, uh, I wish she would fire me sometimes. All right, Elizabeth, thanks for coming. Sure. All right, everybody. A reminder about this podcast. Our interviews are, are also available on KUNV the university's radio station 91.5 the source at 8 30 p.m on thursdays and we, we are just thrilled at our partnership with unlv we just had a very successful uh indie forums here on the state of pot uh and and we're going to be announcing another special uh, event uh very, very soon in fact elizabeth is wildly motioning to me that i should announce this already we're going to have an indie talks uh our first one was with governor sandoval at the smith center uh, in, in Myron's Cabaret Jazz, uh, we are going to have Mark Melman, one of the most prominent pollsters in the country. He was consistently called races correctly here in Nevada. He's doing a poll for us uh, later this month, and he's going to announce the results on April 24th at the Smith Center. Tickets are very, very cheap, only a nominal charge, right, Elizabeth? Yeah, it's $11.50. Those are just administrative fees to the Smith Center, basically. Um, tickets are selling out fast. That room is already about two-thirds gone. Yes. Uh, as of just a few minutes ago, I checked it before we started the podcast. So go to the events page on the Nevada Independent website. You can click straight through to that ticketing page, limit two uh, per person. But in addition to all the poll results, which I almost have goosebumps, truly, I'm excited about the uh, all the polling we're going to do and the, the results. But you're uh, going to have a lively discussion with Mr. Melman about demographics and political lines and ideology and issues in Nevada. It's going to be a, a great night to be in that room. Yeah, we're, we're, we're honored to have Mark Melman. We're, we're expecting a great event. I hope you'll all try to be there on April 24th. And I'm actually thrilled to hear the news that we're already two-thirds of the way sold out. I mean, just having John Ralston at an event, I guess just it's amazing, uh, it's amazing what it does. All right. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think, as always. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at dnvindy.com. As always, please check out our site. Our reporters are just tremendous, producing great stuff every day, thenevadaindependent.com. If you like this podcast, rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can also find us on Google Play. Our thanks again to Chancellor Tom Riley for being here. It was a great conversation. And I want to again thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And finally, last but not least, many thanks to Joey Lovato our fantastic producer who always makes some of us sound podcast smooth. You see what I mean by some of us in the contrast in our voices. Thanks, Elizabeth. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>